Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, welcome inside to another Alex Garrett podcasting production. And uh, I know it's way late today. I mean, I should have been up early, but my emotions were high after seeing my beautiful city looted. And then now reading reports of more looting as we get into the wee hours of the night here is very, very disturbing. I'm going to try a different format here. We'll see if it works. And I'm going to introduce... Dr. Dennis Durell in just a bit. We'll have him back. But um, thoughts on the day. You know, first of all, I don't understand something here on Alex Garrett podcasting at Alex G in NYC on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Alex G in NYC. How is it that the Minneapolis Police Department itself has been able to render 44 people unconscious with neck restraints in the past five years. How is that possible? I ask you that question according to NBC News. Three-fifths of them were black, unfortunately. But the neck restraints, which has been allowed for years... Is any time an officer uses an arm or leg to press someone's neck without directly pressuring the airway, more commonly referred to as the chokehold. And Minnesota Minneapolis police subdued people this way at least 237 times in the past five years. 16% of these incidents led to suspects and other individuals losing consciousness. So, can we say that this case has actually been a history repeats itself police brutality incident 44 people I I think the Minneapolis Police Department needs to go on a 14 day quarantine and I'm not kidding you by the way I'm not kidding you this is bad this needs to be investigated (laughs) And then Mayor de Blasio said something kind of wild. Um, Well, no, not wild. Because he said that some of the police officers in NYPD are inherently racist and need to be removed from the department. 
as a way to get racism out of there. Vast majority of officers do their job, do their job well. The vast majority of officers are trying to connect to communities and do the right thing. They're in this job for the right reason. There are some who do not belong on this job. And there are some that use violence when they shouldn't. There are some that are disrespectful to the people they serve. There are some that harbor racism in their hearts. These people should not be in the police force. And it's our job to get them out. But when you say some, you still paint that broad brush. So when it comes to Minneapolis, when it comes to the NYPD, when it comes to city departments, the question becomes, can we truly have a system where we identify those who have tendencies that could lead to misconduct? Because that, that'll be a better way to truly see. I mean, I just... I, of course, believe Black Lives Matter. I, of course, believe that not all cops are oppressors. And I, of course, believe everyone should be held responsible for their actions. With, of course, almost immediately the charging of Officer Chauvin and the others that just stood there and did nothing as George Floyd was gasping and saying he couldn't breathe and then breathing his last breath. They should be charged. And I'll mention later about the independent medical examiner that the family has hired, um, I hope the county uses their results, not their own results. I'll get into that later. These looters should be arrested. The white ones, the African-American ones, and everybody who does those criminal acts should be arrested and held responsible. But to pawn it off to the police every time you see clashes doesn't do us a service. I think we have to investigate when these clashes start, how many times it started by a protester throwing a projectile, and how many times, I mean, to see them bowling people over outside the White House just before... President Trump says he might deploy the U.S. military if these cities don't get their acts together in controlling the riots, which we need to control, no doubt. Very unnerving today. But yes, I'm not going to skip by that either. President Trump today saying he wants to, possibly, if he has to, if he has to, deploy the military. And I view that as a way to martial law, which I'm not comfortable with. And I'm going to say that right here on Alex Garrett Podcasting Production. It just was a strange, surreal moment. He also added he's dispatching thousands and thousands of heavily armed soldiers to Washington, D.C.,
which had a 7 p.m. curfew. And so here we go. This next step is to possibly deploy the United States military. Something I've been hoping we avoid for the longest time. But I did some other research today. About George Floyd, the man for almost a week now we've been honoring the memory of. And let me tell you, uh, people, uh, friends, ladies and gentlemen, this man was known as a gentle giant. This man was always cheerful, his friends say. And this man had a rebound story. Let me take you back to 2007. After he was charged with armed robbery in a home invasion, sentenced to five years in prison in 2009. They moved after he was released from his hometown of Houston. They moved he and a, f- a friend up to Minneapolis in search of jobs. He wanted to better himself. This was someone that was being given another chance to do things right. To live rightly. And that's commendable in and of itself. How this 46-year-old was in prison, but didn't let him become bitter. It actually inspired him to turn his life around. I'm pretty sure he's a believer in God. I truly believe that, actually. Because he wanted to do well for himself. He leaves, he leaves behind a six-year-old daughter who's in Houston. Imagine being a six-year-old watching this disaster unfold as the cop kneels on the neck of George Floyd to death. Imagine watching that and being so freaked out as a child, no less. So he goes to Minneapolis in 2014 and gets a job working in Salvation Army. Then worked two jobs, one driving trucks and another as a bouncer at Conga Latin Bistro, where he was known as Big Floyd. I'm humanizing George Floyd because all I've been hearing is we mourn the life of George Floyd. Well, what life did he leave behind? And he leaves behind, and he, he he is cut short from, actually, I would say that. He's cut short from his rebound story. The rebound story was going to be this man who lived his life fully after being in prison. That was where his life trajectory was. And here's the other kicker for me. George Floyd was this, was according to the Guardian, and I, I have this whole article I just saw from Joanna Walters, 13, Joanna Walters in New York, reporting on George Floyd. He was one of millions of Americans that lost their job, that got laid off as a result of this pandemic. 
think about that for a second. He was an athlete. He was a football high school star. Nicknamed the Gentle Giant. As a teen in Houston, Texas. This grocery store calls the police after Floyd allegedly tried to pass a counterfeit $20 bill. And a man who was rebounding his life is now gone. Taken away from us. Too soon. Too damn soon. His life mattered. He was making to work his life matter even more. After prison. Which I really appreciate. I really do love the comeback stories. I know you do too. Come on. Who doesn't love the comeback story? And so this man's life cut short. Yes, we should give everyone a chance to redeem themselves. I love that we were, that George Floyd was helping himself redeem from 2009 to 14's stay in jail. I love that effort to work and fix him and better himself after that. Then we can really learn from George Floyd, actually, when you think deeper of his story. In fact, if you're losing your will in this pandemic, don't. If you're losing your will and seeing what's the point, well, there is a point. And it's taking a lockdown to show us it's a point to love life, to live life, to honor and respect life. And to give life a second, third, fourth, fifth chance. Of course, black lives matter. And of course, what George Floyd's story, not the kneeing part to death, no, not that part, but what his comeback tour, if you will, in Minneapolis could inspire, is those rioting and protesting, well, rioting and looting and setting off fires. Floyd was out to rebound his life, not destroy others' lives. I pray you understand that tonight on Alex Garrett Podcast. He was out to better his life, not destroy others' lives. His family, his physical life, Destroyed now. But. He was proving. 
that his life mattered by bettering himself. And I love that. I hope you do too. I hope you do too. And if you do want to help the George Floyd family, I'm sure they can uh, use all the support they want. In this GoFundMe. And by the way. I hope the county. Uses the independent. Medical examiner. That showed he had asphyxia. From the pressures. The forced pressure. On his neck. That was cold heartedly. Put on him. Over. And over. And over. And then the others stood by watching. Gets your blood boiling when you think of it. Well, if you want to support their fund, which has now raised $7 million more than their goal, you still can. At GoFundMe.com backslash F backslash George Floyd. George Floyd. I'm Alex Garrett. Dr. Dennis Durrell will be up right after this break. We'll be right back on Alex Garrett Podcast Productions. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. to lead off Alex Garrett podcasting production for today. I am now joined by Dr. Dennis Durrell. And uh, Dr. Dennis, how are you doing, first of all? I am doing great. Thanks, Alex. I know you are a practicing hospitalist, and we've talked about that before. So first of all, an update on what you've seen in the system from when we last talked to now uh, as COVID sort of is winding down, it feels like. Yeah, well, you know, across our, we have hospitalists and ER doctors across 19 states in 160 different hospitals. And we're starting to see our number of cases. So let's see, about three weeks ago, we'd probably have 100 patients a day. We're probably down to like 40 a day now. So we have fewer cases. We're doing fewer tests on patients that we think would have it. And all of that's a good sign. We also are using more remdesivir. We've talked about that before. That's the drug that got approved by the FDA 
New England Journal just released the data on that. And so it was very hard to get originally, but now uh, in about three of our states, we're getting we're getting it pretty regularly now. So that's actually a good sign. So overall, I think things are improving, and uh, things look good for the vaccine in those trials. So I think we're moving towards some progress. Well, that is good to hear. Do you think that progress now gets set back because of these riots going on? I mean, no one really told these people not to social distance. So is there a chance that the COVID still is spreading while these riots are going on within those sectors? Yeah, there's no doubt there's risk. But what I would say is if, you ha- if you're in close quarters and you're wearing a mask, you're probably okay. Uh, and if you're outside, you're going to be better off. So I think the fact that these riots have been, for the most part, outside, uh, you know, I don't think there's going to be a huge uptick in that. I, I have more concern for the people at the po- in the pool at the Ozarks when I saw, you know, them being very, very close together, you know, all day in a pool. I think that's probably worse um, than, than the riots. And so... Um... So they're outside. That's good. So you're you may not see a rise in this in, because of this is what you're kind of saying. I don't think. Yeah, I think. Um, I think that when you have a large group of people, even if they're kind of close together, which those people, I, I guess, riding are, <laughs> um, it's still outside. You know, I, I feel like being outside is is a big advantage. There's wind. There's sunlight. There's humidity. And all of that helps protect people. And, and from what I've seen, some people are wearing masks, not everyone. So, I, no, I, I don't think this specific event, these riots, are going to increase COVID cases. No. That's interesting because I, I was wondering, and it, and it feels like we're going past COVID now, which I find dangerous, right? We cannot lose sight of this disease, which we've been dealing with, but we can't just stop dealing with it, right? I think that we need to be very careful about developing amnesia already about this. So, yeah, I think right now is the time to, if you think about it, like our doctors, we've done so good about not getting COVID. We have one doctor who's gotten it across 2,000 doctors. So, And it's because we were very vigilant and we were very deliberate with our training and our head was in the game every moment now. As soon as you start to take a, a sigh, kind of a deep breath, that's when you make a mistake. And so I would say that analogy applies to our country in this plight. We got hit hard, but we survived. But we need to be ready when we get hit again. And I don't mean that as a whole second wave across the U.S. I just mean we're going to have outbreaks. And people need to still be vigilant and keep their head in the game. It's not a time to relax despite all the progress. So I, I like I like what you're saying that, you know, it's not time to take to take a break. It's time to step it up and keep our keep our head in the game. Well and, and on the second wave front, I mean, Dr. Fauci now has been saying that we may not get the second wave as badly because of the testing. Is that what you're seeing too? Yeah, I mean I never thought we'd have a second wave per se. I thought that we would see cases decrease throughout the summer. We're starting to see that now. Some states are going up, but for the most part across the country, deaths, hospitalizations, and cases are going down, if you look at the whole U.S. 
And I think that we'll see that trend throughout the summer. And my, my point is it's not going to go away, so I don't call it a second wave. I think the cases will start to decrease, but we will have sporadic outbreaks in local areas, like a church or a funeral or, you know, some party. <laughs> I think we'll still have that. But I don't think we're going to see the ubiquitous, you know, large number second wave like we saw, let's say, in 1918. So I don't, I don't feel like that will be the case. Um, and I feel like time is on our side. You know, I, I have felt all along there's going to be mutations in this virus. It tends to mutate over time, if you look at history, to something less virulent than it is today. So I'm happy about that. And I, so I think time is on our side. And so that's why I think as time marches into the fall and next year, that's going to be beneficial for us for several reasons. The virus will mutate. We will have more treatments. We will have a vaccine. And all of that bodes well for us. The other thing that we're finding out now, which is interesting, is something that I've been talking about. There are a lot of people, you know, some people, I wouldn't say a lot, we don't know the number, but when we test certain people for antibodies to COVID-19, even though they've never, never been exposed, they have some. And their T cells, so the second side of our immune system, you have the antibody side and the T cell side. The T cell side, the cells just go and kill the virus. So we look at people and we study their immune system. They have T cells that are reacting to this SARS virus, this COVID virus, sorry, and they've never had anything. And what that tells me is that other coronaviruses that we've had over the years, common cold, it's probably creating some antibody and T cell response that is beneficial. So I think, I guess where I'm going with it, the more we're learning about different people's immune responses, whether we cause it with a vaccine, whether they've had it themselves, or whether they are just naturally primed, I think we have more defenses uh, against this than, than we've realized in the beginning. Uh, Dr. Durrell, um, you just mentioned about mutations. So I've got to ask this. Earlier on in April, I was researching this. They say there was a strain of this that really started in Saudi Arabia in 2012, which is why we kind of restricted travel there, amongst other reasons. Um, how does it, from 2012 to now, still get through the system, through the cracks? And uh, how did China get a hold of this? Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think that we've learned a lot. I think had we shut down travel from Europe into New York, it would have been completely different. Um, we wouldn't have had these numbers. So I feel like there was a delay there. There was a shutdown from China, which I think was great and important. And if you look at countries that did really well, one of the first things they did was shut down travel into their country. And, you know, like Vietnam did that. Um, uh, you know, countries, Germany, um, countries in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, there was a lot of restriction of travel, and I think that was important. So I guess where I'm going with that is if we have another outbreak locally, meaning local, regionally in, our, in the U.S., we're going to need to think about. We're going to have to think about restricting travel to some degree, at least in and out of those areas. Um, you know, to, and so I think I think the point is that we've learned travel is early on, and these is really where these things catch fire. So um, I agree, we got to be vigilant about that. But you wouldn't know how it got from there in 2012 to China in 2020. That's or 19. That's kind of how I'm 
wondering if, if anybody knew that this was going to happen um, to the point where China would get their hands on it. I think that people knew. I mean, I think that certainly there were cases. It looks like now there may have been cases in China in November. Uh, it looks like it did not come from that wet market or that animal market. We've not been able to find evidence of that. And if you look at people that had it in China, uh, there were a lot of early people in China that had it that it never went to that market, never even were near the market, and weren't near people that were near the market. And so I think it was a spontaneous leap, you know, from bats to maybe an intermediate host and then humans. And that definitely occurred. There's no doubt it occurred in December. And as we look at cases now in France that have been uh, identified in December and now in the U.S. in early January. So I think when you look at all of that, yeah, I think it's been around longer than we knew. And the people that we thought were spreading cases in Seattle and in Washington, we found that genetics don't, they don't follow that virus. So that means there were other people that had it, not the case that we thought that started it. So we're going to learn a lot more about that, but definitely earlier, definitely sooner, and came to the U.S. when we weren't prepared. Dr. Durrell, if he did close down the, 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 you know, the country earlier, wouldn't you say that he would have gotten outcry anyway? Like, I feel like he would never have won in that situation no matter when he locked us in, locked us down. Oh, there's no doubt. Yeah. Oh, he would have been, he was criticized for closing, you know, to China, from travel from China. So he certainly would have. There would have been people that would have said, you know, you're being isolationist, you know, you're you're overreacting, and, you know, we need to let people into the country, particularly that are from the country that are out. So he, he would have gotten a lot of pressure on that, there's no doubt. Um, and I, I can't play Monday morning quarterback uh, with the decision not to restrict travel uh, because I do think it's very controversial. So I think he restricted China, was right, could have probably done some from Europe, um, but again, you know, this is all hindsight. So he never put it, cause I thought he put a 30 day ban on, on Europe too. I, maybe I read that wrong or something. He did, but it was late. Yeah. That if you just look at New York city and look at when people were flying in from Europe, it was six weeks after he closed travel to China. And so he, he, eventually it was done, um, but it was done late. I think the other thing is that people coming back during that time period were not getting screened properly. There were so many people that were commenting on Twitter, just came back from Europe, didn't get checked, didn't get asked, didn't get screened. And I think that was a missed opportunity, too. I'm not going to blame that on President Trump. I think just people were not doing what they were told to do. They were just had a lot of people coming in, and they, you know, they weren't doing the screening that they should have. So... Um, again, I think right now, uh, it's just, it, it's, it's really easy to say you should have done this or sure. that, but he did shut it down, but I think he could have done it a little sooner. That's all. Well, I was hoping, I was thinking once the tournaments were canceled, like early week of March, um, at least New York should have closed down right as that was happening when they found out, you know, the Big East tournament wasn't going on. That's a bigger problem than just leaving it open for another two weeks. So I'm not sure what rationale went into keeping it open an extra couple of weeks, maybe you would have that rationale of, of why, or you wouldn't know why. Was he waiting for the national, the federal government to ask, to tell him what to do, tell him what to do? I don't know. You know, I don't know the answer to that. All I know is I think that 
there was a little balancing act in the beginning of this. You didn't want to alarm people and cause panic. Uh, at the same time, you know, you wanted to act. And so I think there was a little delay on some of that because I think that, you know, there were quotes, I think, of, Dr. of de Blasio or other people saying, oh, it's, mm-hmm. you know, for now it's okay to go to restaurants. And that was a time when I think it should have been shut down. And I think the, the reason for some of that was just people didn't want to cause panic. Right. But I think looking back, we probably should have not worried about that. Well, you know, I Because I think say, also yeah. President Trump early on, I think President Trump early on too, you know, again, you want to reassure people. They were saying this is limited, et cetera, mm-hmm. but, and that was to calm people down, which is good. But at some point, you know, we went from calming people down and somewhat underreacting to way overreacting. And I, I don't know where New York, they, they missed a couple of weeks in there, definitely compared to San Francisco for sure. Dr. Drell, I'm so glad I got you to the Monday after, you know, this, this, partnership is seemingly ending with WHO. Can you tell me more about what's going on there? Because I know that that's what he said. Has it actually happened or is it, is he able to do, does he have the authority to do this? Oh yeah. I mean, he has the authority. I mean, he's just going to pull out. I mean, we, we, we have a choice to be involved in different organizations and, you know, he's chosen not to uh, be involved. I mean, I, you know, my personal feeling was wait until Wait until we see all the evidence, but, I mean, maybe Trump has seen something that I haven't seen, meaning he's got evidence that, you know, we don't necessarily have, have a, you know, we're, have access to. So, you know, I feel like he must feel very strongly about it. I personally don't think it's a good time to get out of the WHO. Um, you know, I would probably wait. Um, there, there may be some things that we need. It might be a way for us to learn about some vaccines that are being developed. So I feel like, you know, I, I think it's a little bit of a reaction, overreaction right now. I, I would kind of wait until the dust settles. I think he might have asked, actually also learned because the Hong Kong protests this week, you know, built up again. And what happened the last time they did that? We found out COVID was in China at about that same time. So I always thought that that was maybe a smoke and mirror. And this time Trump said, we're not having it. I think, I guess, yes, I think there were things that were done wrong. The WHO was slow to react like they were with Ebola. I guess where I would go, I, I would prefer to say we're withholding funding, and here is what we have learned, and here is what we expect from you in the future. And if we don't have these things met, then then we're out. So I kind of would have played it a little more like leverage for them and and if you if they don't react then you get out and i think that's you've given them a chance that's a great point you know and amidst all this craziness last time we talked there wasn't a nursing home crisis now there is uh how was nyc doing i mean did the cdc tell states to do that or was that just an act of our own volition and we're now blaming the cdc for that idea that's a great question I have not, you know, the CDC was active early. I was on a conference call, you know, early on talking about PPE methods, things to do, treatments, and then they went silent. (laughs) They went radio silent, never heard anything from them again. So I I find it hard to believe that the CDC was driving that decision. I'm going to put that decision on New York, um, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's, 
you know, Como, I, I mean, whoever it was that said, hey, you got to take these people to, in nursing homes, that was a mistake. There's no doubt about it. I don't know who told them to do it or not do it. I don't believe it would have been the CDC because, like I said, they, they kind of stepped back after the second week of March, and I never really heard much from them again until recently. Now they're putting some stuff out. When we last talked, remember we were talking about putting on masks on people to go back to work, and that's how we could do that? That idea seemingly was shelved, and I don't know why. I agree. No, I think that masks, you know, when I think about getting exposure to COVID, you have to think about the volume of space. You have to think of the volume of people. And then you have to think about the duration of time. So let's take your example of in a riot. So you're in a riot. So what's the volume of space? You're outside in the world. It's huge. It's as big as it can get, right? Number one, number two, how many people, volume of people? Well, you got a lot of people, so, okay, I don't like that, right? But how, what, what's the duration of time? How long was I really close enough to you, within six feet of you? You know, how long was I close to another person? And, you know, if it's less than 10 minutes, then that's probably not going to give anyone the virus. So if you look at all those factors, you begin to understand the risk. Now, you can mitigate the risk that I just mentioned if you wear a mask. Mm -hmm. So for me, inside, inside with a lot of people, close quarters, and for a long period of time, any one of those things, I think, you know, that now you're leaning towards a mask. If I go in a store for eight minutes and I walk in and I'm out, I mean, less than that, I personally won't wear a mask, you know. Um, but it's, again, it's a duration thing um, in my mind. The other thing is, since we talked, you know, I got exposed due to being at someone's house. Now, we were outside at the pool, um, but we went inside briefly, you know, maybe 15 minutes. Uh, and then I found out later that week, that was on a Saturday night, that one of the people there was positive. Uh, so I had to get tested. So I went through the, you know, the entire process of getting the thing stuck in my nose, the swab, and, and it turned out to be negative. But I guess where I'm going with this is... Um, you know, I now, looking back, should, should have probably worn a mask when I was inside. Again, it wasn't that long of a period of time. But in retrospect, when I'm inside, I want to have a mask on if I'm going to be close to them. Well, and I, I totally agree with you. But let's say the average small business person is now looking at these riots, looking at people being sort of allowed to do these protests when all we've been told is don't go outside as much, don't social, you know, social distance. We from many points of view, we're not seeing that, and yet the small business owner is still locked down. I mean, there's a there's a disconnect here, don't you think? I think it's unfair. It's unfair to, you know, I understand the frustration and outrage. I get it. There's no doubt. I mean, I say I get it. I mean, I'm not African-American. I probably don't understand it completely, you know, obviously from their experience, but um, I, I understand from my point of view why they're angry and I think it's important that we should be able to protest. So I think protesting is fine. I have no problem with that. What I have a problem with is when people's livelihoods are damaged. And that, I think, is – I don't think that's the right message, and I don't think it, it bodes well for what we're trying to achieve. So I, it just as I think it's important to open businesses now because people have to live and survive, they have to feed their families – um, I think it's wrong to destroy their businesses. Right. 
Um, I don't endorse that. I couldn't agree more. I think we should be balancing the message of what we're saying. Especially Protest, but don't don't destroy. Especially because, and maybe you could see this from my point of view too, because I'm watching the city and I'm seeing it burn a little bit here, a lot with the NYPD vans burning. Yet you try and open up a business, you're going to get fined. There's no excuse for it now that they're allowing this to happen. That's just how I see it. I think that it's hypocritical, mm-hmm. but I do understand. If you watch the videotape, if you watch the videotape of that poor man, um, mm-hmm. is it George Floyd? George? I mean, that's just—it's incredulous to me. So, so I feel like I get—I get the anger. I just wish it was not destructive. Um, I think that we've—you know—we've come a long way. We have—we still have a way to go, but. You know, to me, damaging other people's livelihoods is mm-hmm. just wrong. And I don't understand. I agree with you. It's hypocritical. Well, I, I want to ask you this. So Dr. Fauci, I know you, you praise him, and he's rightfully to be praised. He's actually got us through this the best he could, I think. But he did come out and say the anti-lockdown protests were not going to be good for our health. But I haven't seen him talk about the way they are protesting now and burning down things and maybe spreading COVID. I don't know why he didn't speak out against that kind of behavior, too. It seems like a disconnect there as well. I will agree with that. Yeah, if you if you somehow were speaking out against the protest for lockdown, then you should speak out against any protest if you believe that it's going to further spread the virus. So I agree. I think that's hypocritical as well. Um, I do think that when you criticize the protest, you know, you set yourself up for being against the protest itself. And I think that may be his issue. But I think you can articulate that. You can say, look, I understand you're protesting. I think you have a right to protest. But, you know, that hasn't changed the, the biology of this disease. This biology is, is the same. And mm-hmm. so we need to follow the, the same rules that we would have criticized the lockdown protesters. And they were criticized. They were criticized for not wearing masks. Right. They were criticized for being too close. So I think, you know, that's just, that's just being consistent. So I, I agree with your point on that. We'll be right back with Dr. Dennis Durrell. Don't go away. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Well, let's talk about reopening. Have you seen cases spike in your in your state, in the state's neighboring you uh, by the way are you in nashville now is that right i'm in nashville yeah we don't we have not seen a spike in cases no not in tennessee in fact our cases are going down i mean last week probably 470 cases a day for then 450 and i think the last day that i looked it was down to 350 so you know a continued downward trend the are not the inf- the, the number of needed to, or that I would infect if I had it, that, that are not the reproductive number, if it's less than one, it's ideal to get the virus to kind of dissipate. 
And in Tennessee, most regions are less than one, but there are a couple regions that are regions that have like a 1.19. So there are still a couple of areas where it's higher than I want, but overall, going down, less hospitalizations. In terms of, you know, our practices in 19 states, I see an uptick in Alabama. Uh, I see a downtrend in Michigan. Um, I see a downtrend in Illinois, finally. Uh, I see a downtrend in South Carolina. And uh, I see an uptrend in Texas. So I think that's just a good kind of gives you different states. And I know Alabama, we're seeing more and more cases. So, But Georgia, oddly enough, opening up, opened up early, earlier than anyone, their hospitalizations and cases continue to go down. Wow. So, you know, I think it it's very complicated. You know, is there's it, so it, many factors. Is it possible that then Georgia itself, if there are no cases, that we might have some herd immunity going on in that state, particularly with the opening? I think it's possible. You know, I think we have some, as I mentioned, we have some de novo herd immunity because young kids, for example, they probably have been quite primed with coronaviruses of many kinds. And they probably have a response that other people don't have. And so I think if you look at children uh, or adolescents, let's say, they probably already had, whether it's herd immunity, that is they got it, or they just have been exposed to so many more coronaviruses, they have this natural uh, response. Um, I think we're seeing some of that. Uh, I think also the people moving around, they are younger and probably at less risk. And I think some of it is herd immunity. But if you look at herd immunity, well, we have to go from basically 5% to 60%. And that's hard to do, and I've said it before, you know, it's, you know, we're not going to get herd immunity until we have a vaccine. But we will not get that many people exposed before we have a vaccine. And so that's for two reasons. Number one, it'll take a little while to get a vaccine. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm hedging my bet that we, you know, that'll occur before herd immunity. It'll, it'll just take too long to get 60% exposed. And, and that's the thing. It's sort of like, we can't wait for that to happen. We can't wait for everything to go down to zero. So I think we're seeing the governors who have still locked us down under some pressure now. They have to be. I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to stay in your home for five years? We, we cannot do that. We can't function as a society. We cannot survive economically. So, of course, there's pressure. There's pressure to get people moving, to get business and and trade flowing, and we're going to have to do it. But we, we have some things we can do, and we've mentioned them. And if you do them, if you're at high risk, you need to be much more careful. Think about the volume of space you're in, the volume of people you're around, and the duration of time, mm -hmm. and think about those things. Uh, but, yeah, with all of that in mind, we've got to open up. I mean, if someone says... We're going to stay closed until 2022, which I've heard uh, people have said. Then I think that's a ridiculous statement. Mm. I mean, we can't do that. Dr. Uh, Dennis Rellis, who we're t talking with, and you have an app out, and it's that's going to be more prevalent now because people are starting to go back to their doctor for regular visits. So tell us how your My Replay Doctor uh, will help people going back to the hospitals now for checkups and maybe elective surgeries. 
Yeah, thank you. Thanks for asking. Um, the app is called MyDoc Replay, and you can download it for free on Android and Apple at the App Store. And when you go to your doctor uh, right now, or if you're in the hospital, you can't have visitors come with you. And so a lot of times your visitor, your loved one, will be there to help listen and understand and digest all the instructions. But now you don't have that luxury. And so if you're, if you're seeing your doctor, just let them know. I have an app. I have a little app on my phone. Um, I'm not going to videotape you on my phone. It's inside the app, and it'll go away. We erase it after 30 days. And it's just a way for the doctor to summarize everything, to give the key instructions, to let the patient and their family who can't be there see it again and again and again. Uh, and so, for example, my dad sees he broke his arm. He saw an orthopedist in Georgia, and I was able to literally see his doctor talk to him. He showed me the x-ray on the video. I saw where it was broken, and now we're on the same page, even though he's in a different state. So, you know, doctors won't mind doing it if it's inside an app. They're not going to probably want it on your own phone. Uh, and, again, we, we erase it after 30 days because it's just a memory aid. It's really just a tool. So uh, it's a really great thing. We're getting a lot of use now because you can't visit you can't visit your loved ones in the hospital, and people are now going back to see their doctors. So check it out, and it's a great way to make sure you're on the same page with your doctor. Why was it a controversy on Twitter, though? If they if this is going to better care, how come there was some kind of you know doctor? There was a hashtag trending about this. So why is it controversial, and how do you tackle that controversy? Right. Well, that's. That's a great, great question. Well, here's a couple of things. First of all, some doctors are afraid of being videotaped because they feel like it'll be used against them in a court of law, so they're afraid of getting sued. Uh, and I think that's – and that was what people brought up. They were like, well, you'll get an angry patient. Um, that was one thing. Another thing that was brought up was, oh, it's going to end up on you know YouTube or social media. Um, and I think if we – if we just allowed patients to use their own phone, there's more of a chance of that happening. In our app, you know, we control, we let them share it with people, but we control, uh, you know, any any other movement of that video. So I think that, you know, we mitigate that. We also erase it so it's not around forever. It's not supposed to be part of a medical record. It is doesn't, doesn't replace the written instructions. Mm -hmm. It's just a supplement. It's as if, it's as if you saw saw me in the office and I took out a pad and I wrote down about five things just to emphasize it and I handed you that piece of paper, you'd go home, you'd look at it and you'd make sure you refer to it and maybe when you're done, you'd throw it away. Okay, and that's the same thing. That's what this is except it's in a video. So I think people are afraid, doc, some doctors are afraid of it from a legal standpoint. But here's my point about that. Why not go on the record? Why not, you know, you're going to put in the note that I told Alex to do this anyway, why not have it on video? I mean, why be afraid of it, I think is my point. So I think that as consumerism starts to take off and patients you know, are more empowered, I think they're going to demand it. We have the technology. Why shouldn't we be able to mm -hmm. watch that over and over again? Why shouldn't we? So that's my response. Dr. Durrell, um, when you're on camera, though, the message may be changing because of what of the camera rolling. So for doctors that want to embrace this and maybe feel like it's a good thing, or doctors who don't, um, 
you wouldn't say mince your words on camera. How would you say they should approach it if they are nervous? Yeah, well, what, you know, what I would say is, first of all, it's just a summary. You're not videotaping the entire thing. And it's a good way to train yourself to be ready to, you know, to succinctly summarize everything. And so to me, it's almost like it's going to make people improve, doctors improve what they do. For example, um, there used to be, there was, there was something called open notes, so where patients were able to read the actual chart. And when they first started with that, doctors were very afraid. I can't have the patient read the chart. You know, that's my sacred place. I put all the information in. Well, when they started doing it, they realized that patients, when they read the chart, they were able to correct errors and they were much more informed. And so at first, doctors didn't like it, but what they found out was it was better for patients. Mm -hmm. And so I would say to doctors, this is the same thing. It'll be a little uncomfortable at first. You're not used to doing it, but it'll become second nature and normal. You're already telling these things to the patient. You know, just pretend like the camera isn't there. Um, and if you want to qualify your statement, so if you're afraid, then just say something like, um, this is just a memory aid. This is not, you know, complete. You have written instructions or something like that. Just say, this, this is not the complete instructions. Because if, once you say that, then I think in a court of law, you're going to be okay. So maybe qualify it with that statement. Um, but overall, if you look on Twitter, when you when they do have these discussions, seven out of ten doctors are fine with it, and three out of ten are not. Wow. Dr. Durrell, um, and I, I love the conversation here. You have to, I know we mentioned one other big part of this, which is it is HIPAA regulated, isn't it? Like you can do this. You absolutely can do it, but listen. It is not HIPAA regulated, and this is the interesting part, because the patient is taking the video, not the doctor, and therefore it is not part of the medical record, and therefore it doesn't fall under HIPAA. So the interesting thing is even though our app is encrypted, so it's got all the security of HIPAA, but it's not HIPAA because the doctor is not taking the video, the patient is. And that's a subtle difference, but that's why um, it's not actually covered under HIPAA, although we have the encryption that would qualify it for, you know, so people aren't going to hack it, basically. Well, do you have the, the encryption there in hopes of getting it HIPAA regulated? Is that one of your hopes? No, we could make it HIPAA regulated, but we would have to have every patient do a two to authentication sign on every single time oh. and we don't think that patients don't want to do that and because it doesn't necessarily fall under HIPAA we're not going to make them do it now if a doctor wants to keep part of that video in their medical record then it becomes very different and then we would have to we would have to put in that double encryption but for right now we're making it a patient facing app so the patient has it the patient takes the video, they use our app, and the doctor should feel good about our protection, and it doesn't fall under HIPAA because the patient, it's their material. It's just like if they took notes, right? If they took notes while I was talking, then that wouldn't be under HIPAA, right? Right, right. So that, that's, that's the idea. Yeah, so we, we, we have enough security to be HIPAA compliant, but we're just not by nature of who's taking the video. And actually, by the way, if the if the doctor does want to keep 
some of the video or the video as well. That's almost a testament to what you're doing, isn't it? That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it's a testament that the doc trusts the patient. They trust the app. They know that they know that you know it'll be gone in 30 days, so that it's just extinguished and it doesn't exist. And you know we're not going to keep it. So if a court ordered us to keep it or show it, we'd say it's gone. You know because it's just a memory aid. It's not. It's not meant to be a part of a medical record, or it shouldn't be subpoenaable. Uh, and so you're right. If a doctor just does the video and doesn't want it in the record, then I think they're just trusting the process mm. and they're trusting the patient. And uh, have your colleagues been... been and, you know, what's funny is my dad, my, dad, um, my dad has not had one doctor push back on him. Wow. Um, so I think I know where you're going. Yeah, we're starting to roll this out with my doctors, um, and the response has been, you know, in concept, we're, we're still finalizing our, our deal uh, we have to change our user agreement inside the app for my company. But the bottom line is, yeah, all, the doctors that I've talked to are going, are they are embracing it. Um, and they had the one, you know, again, we had one that had a concern, and that's why we've been putting a, a little bit of a change in user agreement. But, yeah, overall it's been well accepted with our doctors. I would say congratulations. I love that you've done this and made this a possibility and that even your colleagues are <coughs> are buying into it. Now, one reason why I want to bring you on today, Dr. Dennis, is because I'm looking at videos of the city and people are out bars and it's like it, you know, it's like we're we're done and that worries me. And so I want to ask you when you see people without masks outside city bars, when you see the Ozark, Missouri disaster where 20 to 30 year olds are out there, you know, not social distancing in the pool, someone you've been working so hard during this, doesn't that frustrate you? Absolutely, it frustrates me. Yeah, and I'm not as much worried about them, per se. I'm worried about people that they go expose. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having read so many of these studies on contact tracing and having been exposed to someone and been part of a contact tracing, I have an appreciation for the, the diligence it takes to really track these people down. And so I would worry that this person leaves that setting and it exposed a bunch of other people, mm -hmm. uh, and that's what I worry about. Because these younger people, they're probably going to be okay, but what about their relatives that they see later? That's what I'm worried about, and it does anger me. You're, you're so technological with this, by the way, and you just mentioned um, contact tracing and other stuff. And remind me of this app that's out there to you know, make sure you know if someone's next to you has COVID. Isn't that very invasive? Like, At first it seems like a good idea, but maybe it's not to get like a – a tr tracking app for those who have COVID around you? Well, you know, I'm okay with everybody volunteering to do it. I'm on an app that's uh, how do you feel, and it's a great way. I can I check in every day. It asks me how I feel. It asks me a series of questions, and then I can get the information for anybody in my area. And, and I've been watching how many people feel badly in Davidson County, in my county. And it's staying very steady or going down. And so I feel like the value of that data is so, uh, in my mind, helpful that it's worth some loss of freedom. However, 
I, I don't think it should be mandatory. So, you know, I just wish people would volunteer, get on these apps, uh, and get this information out there. It's going to help us. But I would never want this done in a mandatory way or people tracking or tracing me without my knowledge. I don't want that. You ha I think it should all be voluntary. And interestingly enough, in Iceland, you know, they had a voluntary app and only 40% participated. I think we'd have less in the U.S. than that. But I, I think there's a chance we could get about 25 to 30% of the people getting on these apps. And I think the value of that, that data and that information would be very helpful. And it could probably save lives, too, it sounds like, from what you're saying. No doubt. I mean, there is no doubt. When you go, when you have a a nightclub exposure, for example, or something like that, which has happened in Singapore. Now you trace one person that goes to four nightclubs, and you've got to contact all those people. Um, you know, if you had a way to, if people voluntarily let that information say, I'm okay with being tracked or traced, and I'm going to answer some questions, then I think it'd be really helpful. I mean, I'd rather know, right? I would say to the people that were at that club, wouldn't you rather know later Mm -hmm. um, the next day, hey, you know, I, I got exposed. I went and got a test. I was negative, and, and now I know. And otherwise, I would have had to stay home 14 days, right? So I couldn't work until then. So I feel like the benefit outweighs the risk. And, and the way you're describing this certainly does sound that way, which is, which is great. Uh, I've got to ask you, though, a couple more questions here. Uh, have you been tested daily? Do you get tested daily being in exposed to the COVID patients, what's your testing process like? No. And, you know, I'm glad you reminded me of this. I can't believe I forgot. But when I first got exposed, I went to Vanderbilt here in Nashville, and I don't mind saying this because I did. I went to a walk-in clinic at Vanderbilt, and they wouldn't test me or my wife or my daughter who all were exposed. So, And the reason they wouldn't was that we didn't have symptoms. And I was very upset because obviously the point of contact tracing is to get people before they have symptoms. Right. And so, you know, I, I kind of pled my case to them that, hey, uh, and then I went the next day and got it somewhere else. So, um, you know, so to answer your question, no, I'm not getting tested daily. There is still people, Vanderbilt, which is a, a prestigious, you know, and again, it wasn't the university. It was a walk-in, but it's still there. It's their clinic. Um, you know, there are people that are not testing asymptomatic patients, and that's wrong. I mean, that is flat-out wrong. When someone knows they were exposed, they know it, and they come in and they need a test, then we should test them before they have symptoms. That way, we're going to be able to be certain that, you know, they don't expose other people. So so that, I, no, I'm not getting tested every day, but, um, you know, I think it wouldn't be unreasonable to test healthcare workers at a certain interval, and some of our doctors are getting tested at a certain interval. Um, but I'm my bigger point is that we should be testing asymptomatic people. Uh, mm -hmm. If you can't get a test and you know you have an exposure, there's something wrong. I so want to keep this combo going. We have just a couple of minutes left, so uh, maybe come back next week and, and dial into the CDC the way they've been changing their guidelines and this and the other. It's, it's interesting to follow, so maybe next week I'll have you back on for sure and we can go through that. But I've got to ask you this. About a week ago, we heard the NFL, one of the executives say, yeah, we'll play in front of full stadiums. We'll be there. I know we're both sports fans. Alex. You've worked with the NFL. You are now going to have Tom Brady in your you know, former Tampa Bay. 
But let's be real. You can't say you're going to have full capacity during October, can you? No. No, 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 no. I, you know, I've told you this before. I think what they're going to do is they're not going to have fans for preseason. That wouldn't make sense. I think they're going to have NFL. They're going to have fans. They may be reduced fans, but they will have fans, and we will have the NFL in the fall. And if there's an outbreak in a city like Charlotte, then maybe they won't. Maybe they'll play that game without fans, but not everywhere. So you know, my I. That's what I, I don't have an inside information. I don't know. I did work with the NFL. I haven't been in contact with them recently. So. I mean, I have no inside knowledge, but that's my guess is that there'll be no fans for preseason. There'll be fans for regular season, but they'll be reduced and there'll be some rules. Um, for example, they may they may require masks. Uh, and then as, as the season goes on, people will get more comfortable with it unless there's an outbreak. So like I mentioned, if there's an outbreak in Miami or let's say there's an outbreak in Charlotte, then I think that they would restrict fans in that game. Well, that would that would certainly be the smart move, and uh, yeah, the NFL stuff. I love that you were, you you know, you met Goodell. You've been involved in the NFL. That's so cool, and that's again another discussion for another day. But when we keep talking, Dennis, other events seem to pop up, so it's important to cover those over the NFL, in my opinion, as of right now. I don't know if you agree with that or not. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of the NFL. I miss the NFL. I enjoyed working with the NFL on my book. They were very supportive. Um, you know, there was a lot of, and we, we should talk another time about the concussion stuff, but, you know, the people that I met in the NFL, the doctors that I talked to that were team doctors, the experts on concussions that I interviewed, you know, they, they take it seriously and they take health of players very seriously. And I think they're going to continue to do that and they'll take the health of fans seriously. You know, I've been impressed with the NFL and the executives that I've met. That's awesome. Where can where can people find you about your book and who you are and what you do? Where where are you on Twitter and LinkedIn so people can find you? Yeah, follow me. Um, you can follow me on LinkedIn, um, Dr. Dennis Durrell. Um, you can follow me at Dr. Durrell on Twitter, at Dr. Durrell. Uh, those are the, probably the best two places. I put a lot of stuff on Twitter. And, um, you know, you can follow me on Facebook. I have a Facebook page and also... I have a website, um, DennisDurrellMD.com, and then, of course, don't forget My Doc Replay. Download the app and uh, see if your doc is going to be good enough to record uh, your instructions for you. Well, I am very happy to have this connection with you because you are one of the doctors that's not far to the right or far to the left. You've got this balanced approach, and I really admire that. So thank you for bringing that approach onto my podcast uh, once again. It's my pleasure, and let's do it again, okay, Alex? Let's do it again. I'm Alexander Garrett. We'll be back. Uh, Dennis, that was... Take care.